You're listening to Rock Your Kindness, a new podcast presented by Love What Matters and dedicated to highlighting incredible stories surrounded by kindness. I'm your host, Tracy Farron, author, speaker, cancer thriver, and online creator. But what I really love to do is inspire others to be kinder to themselves and those they encounter, because you never know how your kindness can change the trajectory of not just your life, but the life of another. Imagine your 24-year-old daughter calling you to inform you that she is now a living organ donor. Well, that's exactly what Sammy Nepsa did back in 2020 during a global pandemic filled with lots of uncertainty. As a mom myself of two daughters around the same age as Sammy, I can tell you that I most definitely would have greeted that phone call with much hesitation, but simply out of concern for the health of my own child. Yet as someone who lost her brother-in-law just a few years ago due to complications of kidney failure, and also someone who is living with stage three kidney disease, I can tell you that I would be beaming of pride for my child being so selfless and thinking of others in such an extraordinary way. I can only imagine how Sammy's mom must have felt receiving this type of phone call and the conflict she felt strictly out of concern, but also a sense of pride for what her daughter had already committed to doing. Now let's tune in to the story Sammy shared with Love What Matters. Hey mom, I signed up to be a living organ donor. She responded, I'm an organ donor on my license too. No mom, living organ donor. She was caught off guard because she didn't know exactly what this entailed. And to be quite honest, I didn't either until a few hours prior. So I want you to tell me about that phone call that you gave your mom, letting her know that you wanted to be a living organ donor. Tell me about that. Yeah, I had already signed up on the website and I called her and I told her I signed up to be a living donor and she was stunned. There was like a pause and I had to explain to her the process. I didn't really understand that it was a thing and she didn't either. And she was in shock for sure. Did she support you or was it just, she had to go through it, filter it, process it? Initially she was like, you're not serious. You're kidding. She was just shocked. And then when she really thought about it, I think she was a little bit scared your daughter kind of putting herself at risk, but she's been on board since day one, which has been great. Now back to Sammy's story. I had been scrolling Instagram when I came across a post from a friend showing off her gnarly abdominal scar with a brief caption about her story. She had donated a portion of her liver to a family friend in need and was celebrating their successful recoveries. I was immediately taken back, one, by how selfless, kind, and courageous she was, and two, for not realizing living organ donations were possible. You saw your friend post an IG story, and was it she was a living donor as well? Yes. And that inspired you to become one as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know that you could donate any organs while still living. So I was very intrigued. It was during 2020, which was a weird time for a lot of people. And I kind of just felt stuck. And I was like, this is probably the best opportunity to help someone, especially because there's so much negativity happening all around the world. So I looked into it. I did some research and I ended up signing up. 
I'm sure you've heard it before, as I have on multiple occasions. Social media is bad, as if it's some type of plague. But what if social media is what we choose it to be? What if it's actually how we choose to use it that matters? Sure, I get it. Some people do use social media for very terrible things. But with anything, there's always a flip side. And for Sammy's story, social media was used for good. So what was it about her post on Instagram that inspired you to do that? Can you tell me a little bit about her and what she did? Yeah, she actually donated to a family friend of hers. So she knew the recipient. I believe from what I remember, it was he needed a donor and she just didn't even think twice about it. Kind of similar to me and just stepped up. She ended up being a match. So she just went through with it and she wanted to help out someone she knew. That's a big deal. And the fact that you just saw an Instagram post from a friend who did it and that that post alone inspired you to do it. And how old were you at the time? I was 24. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's probably not very common at your age to do that type of thing. Am I right? Or do you know? No, that is correct. Similar to my mom's line of thinking, I had only associated being an organ donor with my driver's license, which indicates whether or not I'm willing to make my organs available for donation at the time of death. Donating an organ while alive was a new concept for me. Now curious, I took to Google to do some research. I remember stumbling across a statistic from 2019 posted on donatelife.net. It read, sadly, 8,000 people die each year. On average, 22 people each day, almost one person each hour, because the organs they need are not donated in time. This one really struck a chord. I instantly thought of my uncle who had passed away in 2012. He was initially diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis and was told he would need a lung transplant. Finally, after landing a spot on the list, he was soon diagnosed with lung cancer, disqualifying him from receiving a transplant as he was at risk and had the potential of reoccurring cancer. Losing him at a young 49 was really hard on my family. I can't tell you how many times in the past eight years I wished my uncle was here to have more shared experiences and created memories to hold on to. I know my family feels the same. I'm going to try not to cry. So my uncle, he passed away back in 2012. He had pulmonary fibrosis, which is a lung condition. He was put on the lung transplant list. And while waiting on that, just because the list is long and people with higher needs receive lungs first, he was on the list for, I forget how many years, but he ended up developing lung cancer in the process. And once you develop lung cancer, they remove you from the transplant list because if you were to get new lungs, it's very possible for the cancer to come back. So he did end up passing away and it hit my family and it rocked my family really hard. It's been tough. That was my connection for initially even wanting to do this in the first place, just knowing how hard it is to lose someone. Although we lost him to cancer, had he gotten a transplant sooner, maybe that could have the outcome could have been different. He was great. We miss him very much, but he was a big driver for me, you know, wanting to do this in the first place and 
being able to relate to those people that are in this situation. Yeah. And that's what I was wondering is if his situation is what drove you partly to go do what you did. I can't tell you how many times in the past eight years I wished my uncle was here to have more shared experiences and created memories to hold on to. I know my family feels the same. And when I read that, I thought your uncle didn't get that, but partly because of your uncle, you gave that to somebody else so that their family could have more memories with someone. We think about it when it's like, oh, you gave it to one person. But when you take it just a little bit deeper, it's like, is that true? Because if this person had kids and a family, or let's say they weren't and they went on to have kids, that's generations that you saved from giving part of your liver to someone. In the time, you probably don't know what's going on or what you've done. But I think that ripple effect is far greater than you probably understand or can grasp, you know, that what you did for someone else and their entire family. Whether it's losing someone to cancer, organ shortage, or any cause prematurely, we always wish we could have more time with them. It was in this moment I knew I wanted to donate. It was simple. I had no hesitations compromising a few months of my life to recover from donation surgery if it meant preventing someone else and their family from experiencing the ongoing heartache mine has and continues to go through. The definition of selfless is this, concerned more with the needs and wishes of others than with one's own. And I believe that's exactly what Sammy did. I can tell you that at the age of 24, that is not typical. Most young ladies this age have other things on their mind, far from being a living organ donor. But Sammy being far from the typical 24-year-old acted in such a selfless and courageous way. Let's jump back to Sammy's story. I quickly applied to be a living liver donor on the Transplant Institute website. During my research, I found kidneys and livers are the most commonly transplanted organs for living donations. Although the recovery post-kidney donation seems shorter and less severe, I chose to donate a portion of my liver because it is the only organ of the body that regenerates and reaches full functionality within two to three months post-surgery. A few short weeks after I submitted my application, I was at the hospital for the evaluation process. The assessment consisted of blood work, scans, x-rays, meeting with the care team, specialists, and surgeons. Although the majority of testing was centered around my physical health, there was a psychological evaluation where I met with a psychologist. It was her job to divulge and understand my motivation to donate make sure I was fully aware of all potential risk and understand what type of support system I would have throughout this process. So I was curious about the process of organ donation, partly out of my own interest, but also because I want our podcast community to have a better understanding of it in case it's on their heart to be a living organ donor as well. So can you tell me more about that and the process that you had to go through? Yeah. So the first step was submitting an application online. And then the next step was a virtual training, just kind of giving you like a very top level overview of what to expect, how it works, 
kind of just to give you all the details up front, just so you have an understanding of the process. And then if you still want to continue from there, you would go into the hospital and do all the testing. They took tons of blood. They did an MRI, they did a CT scan. I got to meet with all the doctors, all the caretakers, a psychiatrist to make sure I was doing this for the right reasons. I would be sound in case anything were to happen, absolute worst case scenario. So yeah, it was, it was a half a day at the hospital of testing. In most situations, donors are friends or family members of the recipient and therefore the donor's motive is very clear. My situation was different as I was a non-directed donor, meaning there was no one specific I had planned to donate to. The psychiatrist was moved by my why, but did her due diligence by reminding me even though the risk and chance of complications were less likely as a healthy 24-year-old, I had more to lose on the chance something went wrong. I respected her honesty and attempt to shed light on the ugly possibilities For someone who naturally overthinks, constantly analyzes, and heeds caution to worst case when making decisions, I strangely had no doubts. This not only surprised me, but my family and friends too, as they know I'm the type of person to typically play it safe. Maybe it was naive of me to think this way, but it made the whole process extremely easy. I was so confident in what I was doing because it was something I felt called to do and I knew it was backed by some of the best surgeons and care team members. I decided to put it all in God's hands early on. The week after my evaluation, I was approved to be a living donor. So in your story, you said that you are an overthinker, but yet with this decision, you had no doubts. Why do you think that is? It is very out of character for me. I think I just felt so determined to help someone. I felt if I'm willing to make these sacrifices and yes, there are risks that came with this whole process, but knowing I was in good health, I'm young. So the healing process should have been a little bit easier for me and just faith in general. I felt like everything was going to work out the way it was meant to be and didn't really have any doubts about it. It is funny though, because I am my own worst enemy when it comes to overthinking. And for once, I didn't feel any of that. I just felt like it was all normal. Every appointment I would walk in and I just felt like, oh, this is easy. I know what to do. I just need to be here. And I remember my mom even making a comment one time because she went with me to all my appointments as well. And she was like, I've never seen you so confident and calm. And I was like, yeah, it's throwing me off too, but I like it. That's amazing. And I think you said that you felt called to do it. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. I think sometimes when we feel called to do something, we can have that experience that you had. There's just an inner peace that everything will work out and everything will be fine. Who knows what it would have been like if you didn't have that. What were the risks that you were willing to take to do this? So risks were any serious complications without getting too aggressive. Like I could have potentially not made it through surgery. I guess another risk too would be if the recipient didn't make it through surgery, that's kind of tied in with the psychiatrist. That was a question they asked me was, what if this doesn't work? Like, how is that going to make you feel? 
And that was a tough question to answer. I don't even really remember what my answer was, but other risks were mainly just body functions. They did take out my gallbladder in the process and that helps you process foods, but you don't need it long-term. And for whatever reason, I was very in my head, like, how am I going to eat fried food? Like, how am I going to do these? And they were like, no, that's the least of your concerns. They're like, there's other higher risks. So do they have to take that out because of what they did, the type of surgery, or was it just something they went in there and it looked weird and they took it? They took it because I was donating to an adult. They took the larger lobe. Your liver has two lobes and they took the larger portion and the larger portion connects to the gallbladder. So if they're taking the larger part, I guess they can't reconnect the gallbladder to the other part, but they're like, you don't need it. I'm like, okay, I trust you. I've heard that before. When I had my surgery on my leg, they took my fibula out. And I'm like, well, you're going to replace that, right? They're like, no, you don't need it. I'm like, look, God put it there for a reason. I need it. They're like, yeah, to do the surgery that we're fixing to do because I used it to, do, to put it elsewhere in my body. Five weeks later, I received a call I had a match. I remember getting off the phone and crying because it was all starting to feel real. Something I had been thinking about for weeks was finally happening. I was on my way to making a difference in someone's life. My surgery was scheduled six weeks out and I made sure to keep myself busy. Well, as busy as you can during a global pandemic to ease my anxiousness. I moved the majority of my belongings from my residence in Nashville, Tennessee, up to my parents' house in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I would stay during the three month recovery period. Pittsburgh was also where the Institute was and where the surgery would take place. Additionally, I spent a lot of time working out as I knew I was going to miss it during recovery and worked my job up until the day before my procedure. So tell me more about that phone call and how you were feeling and what you were thinking when just literally four to six weeks later, they're like, hey, we need your liver now. We have a match. I got a call from my coordinator. So you get assigned a coordinator throughout the whole process. She's amazing. We're still in communications now, which is great. But she called me and she would catch up every once in a while. But I just had a feeling when I saw her name come up on my phone, I was like, this is it. And so I answered and she's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, fine. And she's like, are you ready for this? And I was like, absolutely. She's like, we found you a match. I'm like, that is amazing. I don't know. I was just in shock. I was so excited. There was a little bit of nervousness that crept in finally, but it was overshadowed by the excitement. Okay. So I'm assuming you had to now break it to mom, dad, and friends and family. Yes. How did it go? I think that was also their same moment of, whoa, this is happening. She's serious. Yeah. She's not joking. Yeah. yeah. They were like, are you sure? And I was like, Yes. Also me as a human being, it, when I put my mind to something, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to back out. Like I'm going to go through. So, and they know that about me and they were like, all right, well, you're doing this. So we're going to be with you through the whole thing. Yeah. So, okay. You get the call. How long did you have to wait before actually, okay. Game day, surgery day. I believe it was six weeks. So in those six weeks, were you anxious the whole time? Were you just waiting for it? Tell me a little bit about those six weeks of having to wait. So I was anxious, but the time flew by so fast. I wanted to stay busy. I live in Nashville now and my parents and all of the surgeries were back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
So I stayed in Nashville up until about Thanksgiving. And then I was working remotely in Pittsburgh and I worked every day up until the day before surgery to keep myself busy and occupied. My mom thought that was crazy. She's like, you have surgery tomorrow. And I was like, yes, I need to get this thing done for work. Like it's fine. I'm like, tomorrow will be yeah. tomorrow. That's a tomorrow thing. I kept myself very busy, excited, but trying to also not worry myself. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On the morning of surgery, my mom and I left the house at 4.30 a.m. to head to the hospital. Although the drive felt like one of those early morning trips to the airport where you're tired but excited and anxious for what's next, I knew my mom was doing her best to put on a brave face for me. Due to COVID, I was only allowed to have one designated visitor in the hospital with me, which meant my dad couldn't come with us to show his support or be there to help comfort my mom while I was in surgery. My parents were so proud of me for what I was doing, but I knew surgery made them nervous. As parents, they always want to protect me and make sure I'm safe, which was something they had no control over in this situation, but they supported me nonetheless. I could sense my mom's nerves in the car. So always trying to make light of a situation, I played How to Save a Life by the Fray. We both laughed. Tell me about that day. You're having surgery. I want to know all about that. I woke up 4 a.m. and... I was so tired because I barely slept the night before. I know my mom worries all the time about everything. So I know she did not sleep. We get in the car, we head to the hospital. Me being me, trying to always make light of a situation. I played How to Save a Life by the Fray on in the car right before we got out. And she was cracking up. She thought that was funny. We went to the hospital, checked in. They did some testing beforehand. And I think there was like one moment right before I got the anesthesia where I was like, this is, this is it. It just finally hit me where I was like, oh no, I signed up for this, but I was still very excited. But then yeah, anesthesia. And then I woke up very late in the evening. I think it's about an eight hour surgery is what they told me. So very long time, especially a very long time for my mom to be in the waiting room, but she was a trooper. She was able to see me in the ICU afterwards. And I think I was just like crying because I think anesthesia makes me cry. (laughs) We were FaceTiming my dad because it was COVID. I could only have one person with me. And so she elected to go. My dad would have loved to have been there, but times were different. So we FaceTimed him. But I don't remember anything about it because I just was so out of it. High as a kite. (laughs) 
Very much, very much. I think they might have accidentally like over sedated me because everyone else was asleep and I was wide awake like all night long. <laughs> like I think yeah. I slept through everything and woke up. My procedure went really well. One of the first things I asked after waking up was how the recipient was doing. Due to HIPAA laws, the doctors couldn't tell me anything more than the fact that their surgery went smoothly and that they were doing well. The following days in the hospital were probably the most challenging for me in my donation process. Going into the surgery completely healthy and then coming out in a great deal of pain and discomfort was difficult to mentally accept. I had to remind myself several times that the recipient went from feeling extremely ill to full of life again, and the pain I was feeling was only temporary. You had mentioned that you went from feeling healthy to sick, and the recipient went from feeling sick to healthy. I felt like that was a really good insight that you had. Do you think that that gave you more compassion towards the recipient and a better understanding of what they were going through? I do. I do. It kind of puts you in their shoes a little bit. Obviously, I'm not 100% sure of how they felt prior to surgery, but their body is not doing well. Their organs aren't working at 100% like mine had been prior. I think this is kind of where the sacrifice part comes back into play, where I'm at 100% and then I'm coming out of this at maybe 50 or 40%. And they're at the 40. I don't think they're in there as long as I am because they're doing so much better so much sooner. So yeah, it was a weird concept. It's kind of like self-induced going into it fine and coming out in pain, but it's temporary. I tell everyone it was temporary. It was a tough two weeks or so. And then after that, it was really tolerable. And three months later, I'm totally fine. They're totally fine. And so I think sacrificing a couple weeks, couple months was worth it in the end. Yeah. I was discharged from the hospital four days after surgery. The pain subsided a little more each day. And by the 10th day, I had stopped taking all pain medications. Two weeks after surgery, I had my first follow-up appointment. The doctor said I was doing extremely well and I left the hospital cleared to drive if I felt up to it. At this time, I was still urged to avoid lifting anything over five pounds, strenuous activities or stretches, and consumption of alcohol. By two and a half weeks post-surgery, I was walking a few miles on the treadmill, and at seven weeks, I was jogging. I resumed working from home at five weeks post-op and was able to get back into my normal daily routine. Okay, let's talk about post-surgery. Tell me what that was like, the recovery and everything. So once I was able to leave the hospital and go home, I was pretty much in bed for a very long time. It hurt to just move, even just lay on my side. I was in bed. I was trying to eat food. I was not hungry. I just was just there. I just didn't feel 100%. I'd say after 10 days or so from surgery, I stopped taking all pain medicine. Every day I felt a little bit better, a little bit better. And at two weeks post-surgery, it was like right going into Christmas. I went in for my follow-up appointments and they said everything looked great. I was able to drive even. And I was like, wow, I don't feel amazing for that because it even kind of hurt to sit up almost fully. But yeah, every day got a little bit better. I'd say after 10 days, it made a huge shift 
and was a lot easier to handle. Exactly three months after surgery, I returned to the Transplant Institute for my next follow-up appointment. I was most excited for this one because if everything checked out, I'd be cleared from all restrictions. My surgeon showed me the results of my CT scan that day. It was incredible to see my liver had already grown into the space of the resected portion. I left the appointment with a smile on my face and free to resume all normal activities. You had written that the liver does grow back, which I think is so bizarre. I know, it's such a weird thing. It makes you think of a lizard when their tail comes off. Don't their tails grow back? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people that I told my story to friends or people I've met, they're so shocked by that. And I can't remember if I was shocked by that too, or if I already knew that before I even researched this. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's such a crazy concept. It's the only organ that does that in the human body. It's crazy. And so if it grows back, can you give half away again? I don't think so. No, it's a one and done situation because they were able to separate it because of the two lobes. And since I gave one away, now I only have one left. And I don't think you can divide that up as far as I'm aware. So is your liver fully functioning then? It's back to 100%? hmm And you had said it just takes a couple months to grow back in? Two to three months, yeah. I took to social media to share my story and most importantly, raise awareness for living organ donations. After all, this is what sparked my interest and landed me here approximately nine months later. The response I received was amazing. I had people reaching out interested in learning more about the process and others sharing stories about their ties to organ donations. To be honest, it always seemed weird to call it my story because this whole experience took two. All along, there was a character in my story who I didn't know anything about. Throughout this whole process, I was curious about the recipient. Every waiting room I sat in, the preoperative holding room I lay in, and every lap I made around the hospital floor hallways, I always wondered, were they sitting in a few chairs away? Which holding station were they in? Did I just walk past their room? I was always curious how they were doing and how they felt when they got the call about receiving a match. As a non-directed donor, you were told very early on HIPAA prevents both parties from knowing any personal information about each other. But after surgery, only if both parties agree, they may connect. I told my coordinator from the beginning I was willing to meet my recipient, but I would also respect and understand if they felt differently. Now, four months after surgery, ready to end this chapter, content with the unknown, I was pleasantly surprised when I received a phone call from my coordinator. She told me my recipient had reached out for my information in an effort to connect. It has only been a few weeks since and I have not heard from them yet but I am anxiously awaiting and excited to complete our story together. And I know you wanted to know a little bit about the recipient. Did you ever find out anything about who received it or anything like that? Um, They did reach out via email. They were very appreciative. They consider me family now if I ever need anything or holidays, things like that. I'm always welcome. So I took that to heart and I responded and 
just kind of gave them the reason why I had done it in the first place. This woman's husband's name is Mike, which I found very ironic to my situation. Um, so I did, I kind of told her what my reasoning was and we don't communicate too much, but every once in a while. So you gave kids their mom and a husband, his wife. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I may have changed someone's life, but this experience has forever changed mine too. My journey has uncovered my resilience and strength and has reaffirmed my ability to trust God. When I look at my scar, it reminds me how thankful I am for my health and how forever grateful I am through Him, I had the opportunity to improve someone's health. What are you hoping that others will take away from your story? So I, I think that awareness is the biggest takeaway. I hope that people get from this and being able to recognize it in their life. And maybe that will be enough for somebody to want to try to donate or make aware of transplant institutes or ways that they can help. I'd say that'd be the biggest takeaway, but also just know that you don't have to do something as crazy and as intense as a surgery to make an impact on someone else. And you can also just be a normal, plain person and still help others out in any way you can. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think your uncle would be so dang proud of you. And I mean, honestly, I think what you did at such a young age, I think it's amazing. Thank you. Because of the love Sammy had for her uncle, Mike, she found the courage to be a living organ donor. And through her journey, she had faith it would all work out. And it did. It is always nice to know how our actions have helped another person. Yet in Sammy's case, all she knew was she was saving a life of someone she had never met. Sammy didn't know if she would ever learn details about the donor recipient. Yet she was still willing to go through with helping someone. She had no idea who would be receiving part of her, literally. Because it was on Sammy's heart to be a living organ donor, she not only saved someone's mom and wife, but the life of a complete stranger. What is on your heart right now that you are pushing aside due to fear of the unknown or lack of trusting yourself? I can tell you this. If something is placed on your heart, it's there for a reason. Don't ignore it honor it for you never know how it could change not just someone else's life but your own if you're interested in learning more about living organ donation please visit organdonor.gov if you know someone this story might resonate with send them a link to this episode also tag me on instagram at tracy Farron and let me know what part of this story resonated with you the most the best way to help support this show is to rate, review, and subscribe. Your support means everything. Until next time, rock your kindness.